You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to this new episode of the Tech Tank Podcast. I am Nicole Turner-Lee, co-host, and I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have today. It's not only timely, but it's necessary. In the past few months, bank failures have dominated the news cycle. The largest bank failure in the U.S. since the global financial melee was Silicon Valley Bank, whose instability was based on a large portion of uninsured deposits and a disproportionate number of deposits invested in hold-to-maturity securities. Some are attributing SVP's failure to the rollbacks under the Trump administration that impose credit requirements and limits under the Dodd-Frank legislation. Others are suggesting that the collapse was due to faulty management decisions by that bank's leadership. But unfortunately, amid rising interest rates and other inflationary concerns, This bank is not alone in terms of its fragility and disproportionate impact on both consumers and businesses. A line is forming, like First Republic Bank, whose deposits were just bailed out by J.P. Morgan Chase. And just recently, Pacific Western, or PacWest, who now needs a similar cash infusion to stay in business. Why are we talking about it on the Tech Tank podcast? Well, the technology sector has been particularly sensitive to the first bank failure. It was the go-to for companies like Roku, Roblox, Xe, BlockFi, who had concerns about making payroll and loan payments due to the collapse. And these concerns will just continue to spiral as we see more of these closures and vulnerabilities. I'm excited because my guest today is no stranger to the world of financial research, and he's paying close attention to how these economic failures lend themselves to further spiraling out of control in our U.S. economy. He's also my friend, so he deserves this long time with me to talk about these issues, particularly since I do tech and he does the economy. He's also watching the future of the interest rates and how this is adding an additional dimension to the frenzy right now. And I'm so excited to have him and glad that he was able to give the time, particularly on this topic, which is very timely right now. Aaron Klein is the Miriam K. Carliner Chair in Economic Studies and Senior Fellow at the Center on Regulation and Markets at the Brookings Institution. He also holds formal affiliation at the Center for Technology Innovation, which I direct. Aaron, thank you for joining us on this episode today. Uh, Nicole, it's a pleasure. Anytime I get to spend with you, I come away a better man for it. I'll let your wife know that and send you a check, her check when you're done. Listen, there's a lot going on and I'm so happy you could be with us because there is this, you know, awareness, I think, in the public domain around these bank failures, something that we haven't really seen since 2008, right? When it came to the global uh, financial crisis. So I want you to start with what is going on with these bank failures and explain it in a way that everyday people can understand. Not to say that our Tech Tank podcast listeners are everyday people, but we want to know what's going on, including myself. How do we really deduce this? Okay. Yeah, no, people seem uh, often they just kind of don't pay attention to banking uh, until it all blows up and then they want to learn what's going on uh, so that when once it's fixed, they can forget about it again. Uh 
Look, what's happening now, step back. America has about 9,000 banks and credit unions. And what banks and credit unions do is they take deposits and make loans. And that does two important things, right? One is it provides credit to people who need it and savings to folks who need to have money in the bank. Two, uh, it, it creates what's called maturity transformation. That is, the money that you have in your bank account, you can access at any time. It's available instantly. The loans folks make, they get a lot of time to pay that money back. 30 years on a mortgage, five years on a car, right? As long as you want on a credit card, as long as you keep paying your interest. That creates a duration change. So there's a duration change. There's also an interest rate change, right? Because you get a lot less on your savings than what you have to go and borrow for. So why do I say all of that? Well, what happened with these banks is kind of simple in some ways. The banks took deposits. They made loans. You remember, Nicole, when, when, when folks with money could get mortgages for 3%, 4%? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of seeing this, but it, it feels different, right? Because I, I can't remember in my lifetime banks closing down. <laughs> well, look, uh, there are a couple of things. One is banks fail every year. Uh, and that's actually a healthy thing. And we'll turn to why the lack of failures, I think, was a canary in the coal mine for this. Yep. But put a pin in that. All right. A few years ago, folks could get mortgages for 3 and 4%. Now they're 6 7%, right? right because right. the Fed raised rates. Well, somebody bought all those mortgages at 3%. And when you bought those mortgages at 3%, they've gone down in value as interest rates have risen. And some banks bought those mortgages and then didn't hedge their interest rate risk. So they developed a large amount of interest rate risk because they had these mortgages. This is not necessarily mortgages they originated. So Silicon Valley Bank, for example, bought about $100 billion of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac securities, which are basically all these bundled mortgages of folks at 3%. That worked really well in 2019, 2020, 2021, when rates stayed low for longer, thanks to COVID. Now we've seen interest rates go up 500% uh, from the Federal Reserve in just a year. And these banks were caught over their skis with large losses. That's been going on for a while and to some degree hiding in plain sight. We can debate why, but in March, a bunch of folks that had uh, were depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and, and uh, um, Sil Silvergate, uh, a few others, woke up to the fact that these banks were in deep doo-doo. Wow. And they pulled their money. And... This is the thing. When depositors ask for their money back, the bank has to give it to them. Yep. And <clears throat> eventually they run out of money that they can give to the bank if the bank isn't capitalized and they fail. Uh, so so uh, Silicon Valley Bank, classic example of what that happened. First Republic, which uh, just failed over the weekend, their whole business model was finding super rich people and giving them 2% mortgages, even wow. cheaper deals if the rich people would keep their money with them. Wow. Uh, and, you know, those, those uh, the financial product went upside down when rates rose quickly. So are you saying that a lot of this has to do with, you know, because this is so interesting, right? It has to do with the fact that we've always had these trends where banks 
you know, are successful, some fail. There's always been that in the background. But what we're also seeing is this compounded effect by the general economic environment, you know, what the Federal Reserve is actually doing with interest rates, some of the inflationary concerns. Are you sort of suggesting that this is like the perfect storm? I don't know if you ever saw that movie, right? It was a perfect yeah, no, with, storm, with right? No, yep. I, I, you know, it is and it isn't in the sense that most of these 9,000 banks are well managed and they hedge against interest rate risk. Okay. This okay. isn't some complicated thing that, no one could see coming like a COVID or a subprime mortgages where you had this one product and then it worked its way through in different ways. This is like simple banking 101. Right, 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 right. And right. the vast majority of banks hedge their risk. And regulators' job is to make sure that banks do that. And for these banks, they didn't. And the regulators were asleep at the switch. Now, the problem is metastasized. Because once one group of people get jittery, the jitters go around. And all financial services is built on trust. You trust the bank will have its deposit when, when you want your money back. The bank trusts you that you're going to pay it back, right? When you give your money, when you pay your insurance premiums and then you file a claim, you trust that they have the money for your claim, right? It's all a trust game. When trust gets rattled, people can behave irrationally and they can pull money even after out of good and sound institutions because they're not sure, particularly if they've lost confidence that the regulators are on top of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, more concerned about. The failure of a couple of bad banks that made bad bets that were poorly managed, that's a good thing. Uh, those banks should fail. Society is worse off if we have what are called zombie banks, banks that really don't have any money, but the regulators are too afraid to kill them. Japan had a zombie bank problem for 20 years. You can look at what happened to their uh, economy. It struggled. You know, you you, got to put these banks down when they fail and not let them limp along. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting because I didn't think about that as well, because when I look at the banks that are affected by some of these recent failure uh, announcements, they all seem to be sort of in the same category, right? They were high lending banks, you know, not always, you know, what do they call it? Like a consumer banks, you know, for people. So, yeah, there's a lot of misnomer on these typing. People like to talk about regional banks, consumer banks, right? Here's here's an interesting fact. First Republic and Silicon Valley were both about $200 billion of assets. Lots of times you measure banks by assets. Uh, there are a bunch of other banks that are $200 billion in assets. They're called regionals. M&T, uh, I'm a Marylander, you're a New Yorker, right? Yep. M&T was two of our banks, a Baltimore bank and an upstate New York bank merged, right? Um, uh, you got Huntington's, Fifth Third, Zion's, other, yep. other regionals. Or to listeners around the country. You know how many branches something like M&T has? It's about the same size as Silicon Valley or First Republic. Right. You want to take a guess how many branches? Uh, I would say if they're regional, and I'm thinking about those banks because, you know, I think the mortgages are normally, you know, shopped out of banks like that. Maybe five to ten versus like, you know, the major incumbent banks where there's one on every corner. Um, right. So across the uh, M&T and, and Fifth Third, banks of about $200 billion in size, they're regional banks, banks that you or I would poke our heads in, right? Right. Thousand branches. 
Okay. I, I was I said five and ten like I like I was actually an expert on this errand, but yeah, thousand sounds about right. <laughs> and you drive around New York. How many MTs do you see? Go up to exactly. Baltimore, how many MTs do you see? You see them exactly. around. <laughs> thousand branches. Do you know how many branches Silicon Valley Bank had? I want to say, based on what my reading of it was, it was under a thousand, definitely, right? In terms of the number four. of branches. That they had. Yeah, I thought so. Because it There's didn't look like four. it had a lot. Yeah, it didn't look like they had a lot of branches. No, the, the, the official filing will show you 16. Uh, 12 of those were offices. There were only four with tellers. Yep. And so how do you have a $200 billion bank with four branches when, oh, by the way, First Republic had 72 is the official number corresponding to 16. But again, First Republic's model was slightly different, but these weren't regional banks in the way the media or other people are saying. These were sector banks. Silicon yeah. Valley Bank banked companies. They banked tech startups. Sometimes they would do personal lending to the, to the uh, uh, executives. If anybody who's listening is fortunate enough to have been a senior executive or a founder in a startup that made it to Series C and got big. They'll know that on paper, they may own 10% of a company worth $400 million. So they have $40 million of equity in this company. But how do you go buy a house or get a car with that? You can't yeah. sell your stock. It's not even publicly traded, right? You have to pledge it as collateral to someone who's willing to lend against that. Who would do such a thing? Silicon Valley Bank would, particularly if your company banked with them. Yep. yep. Little intermingling of the personal and the business here. We'll set aside that conflict for a moment. But to the extent Silicon Valley Bank was banking people, they were banking the executives as part of their corporate strategy. This is why Silicon Valley Bank, 95% of the money at the bank was in accounts over $250,000, the, the federal insurance limit. Uh, the 10 largest depositors at Silicon Valley Bank at the time of its failure had a combined $13 billion in deposits. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Now, so it doesn't take many of them to ask for their money back to cause a problem with the bank. So the bank was structurally vulnerable. For M&T or one of these regional banks to have a run, you'd have to have a line of people out the door. Right. Right. Here, you have to have six different corporate treasurers. And compounding it, these six corporate treasurers weren't six people who'd never met each other. Yep. The community was deeply interlinked. And this is why when a couple of VCs started sending emails and Slack channel messages to their companies they invested in, there was a, a, a herd-like run because the companies that were at SVB had a similar network of people, similar venture capitalists, et cetera. Yeah. But this is making me think though, right? So to your point about SVB, we also saw around the same time, like a wave of layoffs and cuts and reductions at tech companies, right? Mainly the larger ones, but then we saw an impact on the suppliers to the larger ones, which tended to be tech startups. You know, to what extent, and let's just stay on Silicon Valley for just a second. Are we seeing that the uh, uh, banking failure, and particularly the one of that particular institution, really fell into you know something that I try to think about, like the dot com bubble 2.0, right? <laughs> in terms of what's happening out there in general. Um, because when I first read it, Aaron, I was like, okay, this could be correlated with the other things that are happening out there. And then I want you to come back. I want to talk about like 
the fact that we're though seeing this with PacWest, First Republic. So let's start, let's just stay in on the West Coast for just a second. You and I are East Coasters. Let's go to the West Coast. I know my my <laughs> wife my wife is from LA and went to Cal and and constantly <laughs> reminds me about California being That's right. That's right. There was always well, as, a bit a big debate between Tupac and Biggie. Okay. So yeah, it's an oh, East Coast, West Coast I, thing. <laughs> As California goes, so goes the nation. She was she was very much Tupac. Um, yes. So the the you know Silicon Valley Bank quadrupled in size in four years, which is by the way a classic red flag as a bank regulatory nerd, right? If you just have to like look at simple things about banks that get into trouble, one of them is is too rapid of a growth. It's, it's you don't want the the hockey stick folks in tech want uh, banks. You should be wary if a bank is growing that fast because usually it means they're doing something so different from the other 9,000 that they could run into trouble. Uh, And there's been a debate within the banking community. I'd love to get your take on a tech person, which is why was there so much money flooding into these tech firms that were jamming deposits into Silicon Valley Bank? So much money so rapidly into this sector was it covid relief was it a reordering of the economy was it every you know the all the the flood of money going into tech at once what's what's interesting is the classic way this plays out from the banking side is there's so much of a flood there's a dot com bubble as you say 2.0 the bank lends to these companies the companies have trouble and the loans go bad that's the classic bank failure, which is the loans go bad. Right, right. But the loans going bad mean the bank is failing because the tech investments didn't work out. Turn, right? Somebody lent Pets.com a lot of money. That didn't work out for them. Yep. Uh, but this is not the story. The story here in the banking side is the depositors were chugging along fine. The loans weren't the problem. In fact, SVB wasn't really making loans so much to their companies. They had a capital arm making investments. We, I'd love to talk about that because the regulators are sweeping that element a little bit under the rug, I think, which is a shame. Uh, but they took the money of all these deposits and bought what they thought were super safe, very liquid assets. After the financial crisis, bank regulators focused on this thing called high quality liquid assets, HQLA, uh, as if society needed another four letter acronym. And the idea was in the subprime crisis, people had all these crappy mortgages, which were neither high quality nor liquid, right? Once the, nobody wanted to buy your liar loan 228 mortgage uh, come 2008. So instead they bought these highly liquid safe assets, Fannie Mae securities, US treasuries, and they exposed themselves to a different kind of risk, interest rate risk, as we discussed earlier. That's right. That's right. But why do you think there was so much money flooding into these tech firms that they were able to deposit it at the bank and leave it at the bank? They weren't borrowing from the bank. The bank was awash in deposits coming from these companies. Uh, The largest depositor of Silicon Valley Bank that's been publicly identified, most of the 10 that were listed haven't been. The the, The one that has is Circle. Yeah, yeah. The stablecoin company, Circle had $3.3 billion at SVB when it failed. One depositor. Wow. $3.3 billion. Wow. Was it crypto cash? Like, what was the money? The, the second largest depositor I've been able to find is Roku, 
which was just under hundred, just under five hundred million. So these ten who had thirteen billion, a lot of them are quiet. I don't know who they are. I don't, I don't blame them for being quiet, but uh, it, it, I try to think about who are these customers and where is this tech money coming from. Well, I think it goes back to what you said, though. I mean, we did have pandemic relief, so I think there probably was a lot of money coming through that. We saw a lot of digital disruption and dependence during that period of COVID, where commerce was really, uh, e-commerce was directing how business models were panning out. I mean, look at what happened today. Uh, Jenny Craig is out of business, and one of the things that they're asserting that was due to their demise was e-commerce, Right. So I think we saw a lot of innovation sort of look like less riskier investments, which is why we heard from companies like Etsy and Roku, the bank's failure was going to contribute to them not being able to make payroll or loan payments, which to what you're talking about is that shouldn't have been the case, right? Because they did have a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, Roku this. is full of it. If there's, I've not heard Roku say that, but if they said it, they're full of it. Let's let's step back for a second because I've been very critical of the bailout of the uninsured depositors at Silicon Valley Bank. Let me walk you through how this would have played out had the government not invoked emergency measures and bailed these folks out. And for simplicity's sake, I'm going to say Roku had 500 million bucks in the bank. So, so, so it wasn't Roku. <laughs> I think yeah. I heard it was other people that were it like. It may have been Etsy. And I'll talk to, about Etsy and Etsy's payment processing is a little different. But l- let me just stick with Roku for a second because it's it's illustrative. I use, you. I have Roku. I don't know if you do. It's great. I do. I, like it. I do. No endorsement. We are a nonprofit. We do not endorse industry things, but I do have Roku. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm not going to endorse it mate, then, but I'll tell you, when I watch the session and when I watch Ted Lasso, I'm, I'm generally pretty happy with everything. Uh, well, uh, so here, uh, and no spoilers. I didn't see, I didn't see Ted Lasso yesterday. I'm behind because I keep writing stuff on this bank failure. <laughs> so Roku, 500 million bucks in the bank, normal order, bank fails. They get their first $250,000, 100% guaranteed. That's why everybody listening should take a deep breath. Your money in the bank's fine. 98% of Americans have $250,000 or less in the bank account. Shoot, half of Americans would be happy if they could always have a thousand bucks in their bank account. So the deposit insurance limit worked great as is for ordinary people. Roku would get access to about 60% of their money immediately. The FDIC would close the bank and say, uninsured depositors are going to take losses. The losses aren't going to be that great in the sense, right? These these loans are real, right? People are paying their 3% mortgage. Uh, so the, the money's there. It's just going to be worth less than what we thought. So Roku, you have access to $300 million immediately. And as we dispose of the rest of the bank, we'll pay you the rest of that $200 million, your share. Historically, people lose about 10%, maybe 15, sometimes less. We'll say 10% for simplicity's sake. So Roku would have lost 50 million of the 500. They get access to their 300 immediately and they get the other 150 in a couple of weeks when the FDIC is done cleaning the mess. It took them, I think, about two weeks to find a buyer for Silicon Valley Bank. So I think Roku makes payroll with $300 million. I don't think many of these tech companies were managing their payroll to the level that they, they couldn't make it with 60% of their money on their bank account balance. I think this payroll argument was a canard and used as a justification for the bailout. So Circle, let's flip it to Circle. Circle's $3.3 billion. That's real money. 
So they get access to two billion of it immediately with a note saying the other 1.3. Now, Circle's business model is pledged one-to-one -one stability. One US dollar coin crypto is equal to one dollar. Now, the market just heard that they may lose up to a billion dollars in this loss. The actual thing will probably be only about 300 million, but headlines are tricky things when it comes to trust and panic. Circle puts out a statement that says, we have much more equity. We had many different bank accounts. You know, I think they were at $50 billion of, of coins outstanding when this started. Don't worry. We're audited statements. Uh, uh, we can absorb this loss with our own equity. Query, do people run from the coin? Over the weekend, when it wasn't clear that they were going to get bailed out, the stable coin value fell as low as, I think, 88 cents. Markets and trust are tricky things. Economically speaking, Circle's evidence seems strong that they could withstand that kind of loss imposed on the un on uninsured depositors in traditional bank failure. That's not the question. The question is, would the market have trusted that? And if there was a run on Circle, what else would have unwound? A lot of Ethereum smart contracts are based on this premise that stable coins are stable. Uh, we saw what happened with FTX when there was yep. uh, questions about the value of its coin, although it was not trying to be a stable coin by any means. That's right. Uh, what are the knock-on effects? Those types of systemic risk questions, I think, were the driving factor of the of the bailout decision. But that's a very tricky political thing to say. It's much easier to say, you know, we wanted to help small businesses meet payroll because who's everyone's for small business. And nobody wants workers to get screwed. Uh, the last point I'll make on this, and it drives me apoplectic. There were a bunch of people whose payrolls were messed up, in part because one of the sets of clients for SVB were payroll companies. So small businesses who didn't even bank with SVB used a payroll company, not ADP, which is the largest, but there's a whole other group of them who then used SVB. They right. had disruptions anyways, because in the process of the bailout and the creation of the new bank, the wires, I, I don't want to get technical on the inner workings of the payment system. Actually, I personally do, but I don't think you want me to. That, <laughs> uh, the, the result here was there were some payrolls missed. Some people did get paid late. This all went down on a Friday, usually payday. These people got overdraft fees over the weekend when their bank account, when their Friday payday didn't hit. Regulators didn't lift a damn finger to stop these overdraft fees. Senator Warnock raised this point when the regulators came to testify, oh yeah, we'll look into it, we'll look into it. They should have suspended the overdraft fees for folks affected with this or even more broadly if you couldn't identify it. And it's an example of when there's problems in the financial system, people are rushing to try to make sure big money gets paid out. And the, the top priority ought to be the average American, particularly people getting hit with overdrafts. And I'm going to pause before I work myself up too much about this. But, you know, it, it dawns on me because you just submitted a Washington Post op-ed around authority, right? And these issues that you're speaking about, they really require a lot of due diligence and some strict monitoring and oversight of these various conditions. I mean, you know, it was not reported in the news the, in the way that you're explaining it about, you know, not only was SVB a holding company, but it was also a company that was holding the assets of, you know, very perfunctory activities, right? That that needed to be done, which had a spiral effect on why that was a big failure for us. 
in your op-ed, you wrote about like, maybe the Fed shouldn't be doing this. Maybe we need a regulatory agency that actually can pay attention to these details. We need an Aaron Klein, <laughs> right? Who's actually paying attention to not only, you know, these levels of risk, but also how these banks are operating. Tell us a little bit more, like your opinion. I know you're always provocative, Aaron, but that one uh, I thought was pretty interesting. I had a chance to just look at it. What are you saying? Take yes. it away from the feds? <laughs> Yeah, I am. So, so this is what I, this is what I'm saying, you know, uh, Nicole. One of the great things about being with super smart people like you at Brookings is, is you get to think not just about your own narrow world, but about how the world ought to be. And there's an ancient Greek word telos, which means true north star, number one priority, guiding core principle. And the argument is that people have telos and organizations have telos. And you can only have one number one priority. If anybody lists their top priorities and you get seven, they have no priorities. So what is each organization, each entity in Washington is structured with a core objective if Congress does its job right? Because Congress's job is to set the objectives. The number one objective of the Federal Reserve is monetary policy. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. Uh, I... Uh, bank regulation is number three on their own list of their top five. Payments is number four. Is it little wonder that America has the slowest payment system in, in you know the, the developed world It's that the Fed is in charge of? Why? Because it's not their top priority. Their top priority is monetary policy. We shouldn't keep trying or expecting an organization to excel in things that aren't their top priority. There, We have a bunch of other bank regulators, too many, to be honest with you, the Comptroller of the Currency, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, there are 50 state regulators. There, there's a lot of folks, there's a National Credit Union Administration regulator. There are a lot of folks whose job is bank regulation, first and foremost. The Fed's job, first and foremost, is monetary policy. Now, the Fed's got more bank regulatory authority over time, in part because their status in Washington has risen because they've done some really good things on monetary policy. And then we keep getting shocked and confused when they mess up as regulator. The Fed regulated Silicon Valley Bank from head to toe. It regulated its holding company. It regulated the bank. It regulated all the aspects of it. And the failures there were simple hiding in plain sight. This wasn't a complicated bank. This bank was doing obvious things. By the way, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, Nicole, sat on the board of the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank that regulated it. Wow. 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 Uh, because the law says that bankers sit on the boards of the regional banks who regulate them because the law was structured so that the regional banks would have input and independence from Washington in setting monetary policy. And this is the core thing. So what I wrote in, in the Washington Post is we, we ought to focus on aligning responsibility with core mission when we're thinking about regulatory structure. And the Fed keeps gaining authority in regulation and then messing up and I can talk, I have a bunch of examples in, in the paper, and then they somehow get more authority. Why don't we look at other entities whose telos is bank regulation and let the Fed do what their telos is, which is monetary policy. 
That's right. That's right. Well, do you think that some of this also has to do with like, uh, you know, everybody always tries to blame Trump. I'm not. For those of you who are listening, I'm just asking a question. Does any of this have to do with the rollbacks of Dodd-Frank under Trump in terms of some of the requirements? So uh, yes and no. And this people want a yes or no answer. One group yep. wants to say yes and one group. Says. So the rollback under Trump said the following. The law as written said all banks over $50 billion had to be subject to enhanced prudential standards. We're going to call that the honors test. So every bank has basic test and then the the bigger ones have the honors. The $50 billion threshold, which was set hardwired in Dodd-Frank, not indexed for inflation, uh, I helped write that number, was set specifically too low because we didn't want the market to think anybody who passed the honors test would 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 be too big to fail. We wanted more people in that group uh, to try and fight too big to fail stigma. So fast forward 10 plus years, the smaller banks are complaining the honors test isn't isn't right for them. A bunch of banks are hovering at 47, 48 billion, right? And starting to merge because you could be at 47 or you could be at 80, but you didn't want to be at 51. By the way, Silicon Valley Bank was one of those hoverers right before 2018. So Congress went in and President Trump, with bipartisan support, there there were plenty of Democrats who supported this, although most didn't. So he bumps the 50 number up to 100, under 100, no honors test. From 100 to 250, they said, you know what, the Fed, you have discretion on whether to apply the honors test. And the Fed, led by Trump appointees at the time, was like, we're so smart. We'll use this discretion perfectly. We're going to tailor. That was the key word. We're going to tailor the honors test exactly to who needs it. We got it. Now, what they then did with that discretion was nothing. They didn't give the honors test to anyone. First Republic, Silicon Valley Bank, these were all banks right in that 1 to 250 range. They didn't give them the honors test. So why don't I just end the story with, see, it was the rollback's fault. Well, I'll say I can't draw that conclusion because they're some stubborn facts. One, you didn't need the honors test. These things were failing the basic test. Silicon Valley Bank quadrupled in size. It had huge uh, unrealized interest rate losses. It borrowed like mad from this thing called the federal home loan banks, which you don't even have probably time to get into. But as a classic indicator of stress, the big borrowers in 07 were Countrywide and WAMU and IndyMac and right. First Republic did the same thing. The problems were hiding in plain sight. And the regulators, so you didn't really need the honors test. The basic test would have been enough had the people giving the test been doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, I think it also goes back to like what you're suggesting in terms of the regulatory authority and if we should be rethinking this regulatory authority, particularly if the feds have so much control where they're actually doing monetary policy and bank regulation, should it be shifting to other departments? And you know, there's also like discussion on whether or not we need to raise the level of insurance to the FDIC as well. I mean, you know, my, my conversation is this, Silicon Valley started it. First Republic came in, you know, fortunately, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase came and saved them. Uh, we're looking now at PacWest. We're, we have to figure out who's going to save them. I mean, at the end of the day, Aaron, like what is the uh, uh, projection around all this? Are we going to continue to see more banks fail? Should we be looking at a new regulatory agency, which is, of course, your argument, but also looking at increasing insurance limits? Should we also be educating uh, the public, you know, particularly these disruptive uh, economies of scale and industries of scale, you know, about, you know, risk, <laughs> because it, it, it seems to me, again, 
that movie, which I love so much, with George Clooney, The Perfect Storm, right? And it's coming at a time when we're still getting out of COVID. We've got huge federal investments. Uh, we're seeing big box stores close due to the same thing you're talking about, hasty financial decisions. Um, I, I, I just don't know what to do. You know, how do we look at all this? <laughs> Let me try to give you a couple guiding principles on how I look at it. Yep. Right. One is I, I like to go back and think about the people that set up the system and how they saw the world. Franklin Delano Roosevelt put caps on deposit insurance because the point of the deposit insurance limit is that ordinary Americans shouldn't lose their life savings if their bank fails. He said the limit originally at $2,500, then it was $5,000 in the 1930s. Uh, today, it's $250,000. Uh, by the way, that number was up from one hundred dollars to two fifty dollars in the dark of night in, when we were writing the law that's known as TARP. Uh, just as a political sweetener to try and get smaller banks to like the bill after the Republicans voted down. It had nothing to do with some grand, this 250 number isn't some well-calibrated thing. But I'll tell you what it does do. It covers 98% of Americans have 100% of their money insured in them. And, and if you're lucky enough to be in the top 2% that have more than 250, open a second bank account. That's 250 per bank if you want to get all that money. What it doesn't do is provide unlimited government guarantees for the wealthy to have their money guaranteed in perpetuity at any bank. And I don't think we should do that. That's not the role of the federal government. Furthermore, if depositors aren't keeping an eye on their bank, who is? If they're not incentivized to run, if their bank has a problem, bank's going to take riskier bets. And I think it's a mistake for progressives to say, oh, well, the government will just be a better regulator. You know, they're you got to have multiple checks and balances here. You can't put all your eggs in the government's basket. Look at what they did in regulating these. Look at how they regulated the subprime mortgage situation. Uh, final point, who pays for deposit insurance? Well, people go, oh, it's the banks. You and I know the banks pass those customers along, pass those costs along to their customers. Research shows, particularly in banking, they get passed to the lowest income customers right? We, basic banking is regressive. A thousand bucks or more in the bank account, free checking. Less than a thousand bucks, 10 bucks a month the fee. Run to zero and hit an overdraft, that's 35 bucks. Yep. So, you know, basic banking is regressive. So you're going to provide insurance for multimillionaires and billionaires. Steve Mnuchin, Trump's treasury secretary, has been arguing for $25 million of deposit insurance. That's a great deal for him. I get it. That'll make him happy. His money's always safe in the bank. And who's going to pay for that? People with less money and higher fees. So it's a regressive policy. It misaligns incentives. And it's somewhat the wrong solution. Uh, so I'm very much against raising the deposit insurance cap. That's why. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, second point, people need, we are reflexively bailing out holders of wealth. And the bailouts have consequences themselves. A lot of money left the banking system and went into money market mutual funds. These things are not insured by the government, but they keep getting bailed out. They were bailed out under COVID relief. They were bailed out before because the idea is, oh, it's too disruptive if a money market mutual fund <clears throat> goes from $1 to 98 cents, right? These, these things only exist because they use an arbitrage of rounding. It's kind of like a stable coin in the 1980s. You know, investors need to take risk. 
We can't live in a bubble wrap uh, uh, society where the holders of wealth are protected if their investments go south. That's life. Uh, capitalism without losses isn't capitalism. And I'm worried that we're getting there into this kind of crony situation where under the guise of financial stability, we just continually bail out the holders of great wealth, uh, which ultimately gets paid for by the rest of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But don't you think that's going to happen? I mean, uh, you know, just sort of shifting now and, and and we'll start wrapping up here, right, to First Republic and now PAC West. I think the government is going to have to figure out, you know, how to save these banks, right, to one portion of the argument, um, or incumbent banks are going to step up and take their deposits. I mean, do you think that this is, and it kind of goes back to your first point, right? Is this a perfect opportunity to sort of downsize and reflect while also considering some of the policy pivots that are put, being put out there? Um, or is this a time to think about, you know, the real la- the reality of the situation is that the feds have had to raise interest rates because of inflation and that these banks, which, you know, sit in the mix of, like you said, traditional financial systems, they, they just got caught. They got caught out there by not being prepared. I mean, I, as we wrap up, I think for those people who listen to Tech Tank, obviously this is affecting tech startups and tech companies because they're sort of the you know, the next leg of disruption and in industry, this this digital industry, industrial revolution. But I'm just curious as we wrap up, like, are we going to see more banks like PacWest and First Republic, you know, basically be subjected to the same type of uh, scrutiny and potential failure? Yeah. So there are two different issues in the bank, and then I'll, I'll talk about the banking stuff and then the tech stuff. The first thing on the banks is we have 9,000 banks and credit unions. More than four or five of them are out over their skis. Yes, yes, that's my point. Yep, yep. And yep. so, okay, if you made bad bets, if you didn't hedge your risk, if you didn't act prudently, if you were poorly managed, You're that's gone. life. There are consequences <laughs> to that. When I go yeah. outside and I don't bring an umbrella and it starts raining, I get wet. Yeah, yeah, I see. I see, yep, yep. And so <laughs> now, what we don't want is good, healthy banks to be caught up in a running fear. And part of the problem is when uh, uh, regulators have a difficult walk. They have to show confidence in the system. But if they show too much confidence in the system, then that gets undermined when the next bank has some issues. Uh, And so this becomes very difficult in terms of when to stop the crisis. Uh, But I do think we ought to appreciate that some creative destruction in banking is a good thing. Not the worst thing I promised earlier to, to 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 talk about no bank failures. Do you know, Nicole, starting in 1776, America's had banks fail every single year. Do you know the first year not a single bank in America ever failed in our history Mm-mm. as a country? Mm-mm. When? 2005. Okay. Why was at that significant? One, <laughs> at least one bank failed every year. Why is 2005 significant? Second year in American history, no bank fails, 2006. Okay. <laughs> I'm working on the chief economist of the Senate Banking Committee every year. The committee has all the bank regulators come up and tell us how's the system. And they go, this system has never been better. By evidence, we're doing such a great job. Not a single entity we regulate has failed in two years. Look how safe the system is. We know in 2006, the banking system was like uh, Wiley Coyote way over the cliff, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. I was going to say, right. <laughs> And the biggest canary in that coal mine was 
no bank having failed. Why? Because they were all doing the same thing and they were all pretending like it was working when it wasn't. The next time in American history, two, we go two years without any bank failures, 21 and 22. Yeah. And so regulators have to tolerate failure. And this is where I want to pivot to tech. One of the arguments I've heard back is, Aaron, you'd be surprised. You keep saying these corporate treasurers at startup tech firms that are worth $100 million, $200 million are sophisticated big folks who should be paying attention to their bank. <laughs> That's not how startups work, Aaron. I hear that all the time. These folks, corporate treasurers, got three or four other jobs. They are not looking at the call report of their bank. They're not reading analyst report. They're at Silicon Valley Bank because some VC investor told them to, and everyone else is also. And maybe that's an unrealistic expectation for a $100 million valued company that they pay a little attention to their bank. But in my world, corporations have to pay a little uh, attention, big corporations. I'll define big by money. Some Many of them still qualify as quote unquote small business. But you got to pay a little attention to where your money is. Takes a little time, takes a little resources, but it also helps keep the bank honest, which I think is a better use for society as a whole than outsourcing due diligence to quote unquote someone else. And then when that fails, pleading uh, to the government for a bailout because that no one else was doing their due diligence either. So this makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, I, I am just so appreciative, Aaron, of this conversation because what it's making me think, and I was writing some notes down as you were talking, one, it's the nature of the industry, right? So the banking industry is always going to experience some level of volatility that is going to come from a variety of external factors. So it's going to happen. But one thing you've taught me in this podcast, you know, particularly for myself who stays within the tech policy space, that there is a difference between a bank that hedges their bets, you know, against that volatility and and those that just make bad management decisions when it comes to how they hedge those bets. I mean, as you've mentioned, going a long time without a bank failure is not always a, a, a symptom of success. And then I think the other thing that you're really suggesting is it's really time to think about our regulatory structure and the extent to which we're putting in the right oversight and due diligence to not have this happen again, particularly in a sector like technology or other, you know, look at AI now, right? Other burgeoning sectors where they're going to be looking to these types of banks for the type of funding they need um, to, to build products and sustain them. You know, I just think about it this way too, for the average everyday consumer who may or may not have direct impact or, you know, because these are not necessarily retail banks, they are still affected, right? Because their mortgages, their holdings are sort of the capital that's behind the scenes uh, being uh, uh, purchased and sold. Am I right about that? Just so my grandmother who listens to this understands this does affect her too. <laughs> Absolutely. There's going to be a credit crunch when people pull their money out of the banking system, as I said, and move to money market mutual funds and other things, banks stop making loans quite as easy. Credit is harder to come by, both for ordinary Americans and also for startups, for companies uh, you know, seeking to do something a little riskier. Banks are taking fewer risks because they need to have more cash on hand because they're not sure whether people are going to come asking for their deposits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that. And, you know, as I keep hearing with the uh, interest rates increasing, we're also going to have a credit card collapse potentially as people begin to default on their credit card. 
payments. Well, that 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 issue has a lot to do with employment. Yeah, uh, yeah. rates have gone up, and so having five six thousand dollar balance on your card is now a lot more expensive to maintain. That's right. That's right. Uh, That's right. But you know, as long as you still have a job, uh, you know, and the income is coming in, and and we'll get an employment reading uh, the first Friday in May. But so far, the uh, employment numbers have stayed stronger. From a macroeconomic perspective, there's a bit of a cruel irony. The, the Fed has been raising rates to try and slow the economy to cool inflation, slow the labor market, maybe cause a recession, maybe not. Uh, they may have accomplished mo- more in slowing the economy through uh, making mistakes as a bank regulator and generating a bit of a banking crisis. Right, right. I was just always thinking as you were talking. <laughs> and the impact of inflation. And I can assure you that as a monetary policy setter, nobody was sitting around going, well, you know, interest rates aren't causing uh, inflation. So let's let's just, you know, mess up and let a few banks run themselves into the ground. That's not what happened. Uh, uh, nor would should it or ever have been. Right. The, the mismanagement and failure of regulation goes back years. Yeah. 2019, 2020, 2021, when these they were buying these low interest rate uh, assets and not hedging their risk, and the regulator was looking the other way. Yeah, I got to have you back then. We're going to talk a little bit about this. This has been so exciting. One, because I just love listening to you. You make these things so easy to understand. So thank you, Aaron, for coming on. I really, really appreciate working with you and having you as a friend. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Nicole, it's a great pleasure to... to beyond and it's always fun talking with you I, I love the way that you insightfully drill down right at core issues I know I, I surprised myself today because you know I follow these things but man I was kind of smart today on them <laughs> I have to tell you I was hitting it um listen you're listening to Tech Take, my friend, where we take large bits of information and very complex issues and turn them into palatable bites. I'm Dr. Turner Lee, and let me just say this as you're logging off. If you're taking the time to listen to our podcast, we're going to ask you a couple of things. Leave us a review. We love reviews, and we'd love to hear from you, particularly from our loyal listeners who listen episode by episode. Recommend us to a friend. If you like what you're hearing and you're learning a lot like I do every episode, as well as my co-host, Daryl West, please recommend us. Thank you again, and we'll see you on the next episode.